When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates North Park, Illinois. All I said was like, how fast can I move up the depth chart? That was my mindset. And it wasn't about being cocky. It was more like, athletically, I knew I had the abilities. I also knew how much work I was willing to put into this as well. It was just showing them what I could do. And it literally took about two weeks to where I start moving up. I moved up and then I was backing up, I think, um, Scott Holman and Lou Barnes. But I remember Bob Toledo, the offensive coordinator, said, man, you really surprised all of us. We didn't think you could play at this level. I said, yeah, you're too busy judging me from the outside. I just needed an opportunity, and, and they gave me that. This is the Mighty Oregon Podcast, and this is former Ducks wide receiver and hurdler J.J. Burton looking for a chance. It's been said that in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. For proof of this statement, look no further than J.J. Burden. A speedster out of Lake Oswego, Oregon, Burden ran track and field for the Ducks, but wanted an opportunity to get on the football field. So he walked on, literally. Well, the plan was to watch practice the next day, but stand on the field. You're not supposed to be on the field. I figured a coach or someone is going to tell me to leave, and I'm going to at least be able to say why I'm here. And I stood on the field during practice. I was near the goalpost in the end zone. And, and right towards the end of practice, I see Rich Brooks walking toward me. He's at a beeline heading towards me. And Rob, I'm starting to get nervous. I'm like, uh oh, oh no, here, what are we gonna do? Here it goes. How does someone with a single touchdown in his college career get drafted into the NFL? An opportunity. Burden would make that opportunity last eight years in the league, playing with some of the all-time greats. And it all comes back to seizing the moment whether presented to you or not. Now, you preceded me at Oregon by a few years, so your story's not one I'm as familiar with as some other guests we've had on this podcast. Graduated from Lake Ridge High School in Lake Oswego, so did you grow up in Lake Oswego? No, actually, I grew up in Northeast Portland, 13th and Killingsworth. I lived literally you know, a mile away from Jefferson High School, and in the sixth grade, my mom heard about a busing program that was taking place where they were busing the inner city kids to the Lake Oswego schools. And she wanted to transfer me there. And I thought it was a very bad idea, but it turned out to be the best decision she could have made. Because when I, when I started going to school out there, I felt that I was being more challenged academically. When I saw how smart the kids were and how well they were doing on the spelling test, I thought, okay, I'm gonna step up my game. And so it really made a difference, not only athletically, but also academically. 
you hear the phrase a busing program, you think it's a vestige of a different age, of a different time. Um, but it, recently enough that that impacted your life, what were some of the challenges that that presented? And, you know, going from that neighborhood you grew up in to, to a different community. And then, yeah, also, it sounds like there's benefits you felt like you, you enjoyed as well. Yeah, there were a lot of challenges. I mean, one, it was inconvenient. I mean, I had to get up like at 5.30 in the morning to catch the bus, and, you know, the school bus at 6.30 and to take us all the way out there. And then we would get home late. And it was one of the reasons why I never got involved in athletics. I started in sixth grade. I didn't do sports until 10th grade because if you participated in sports, there was no school bus to take you home at 6.30 at night. So you had to walk 30 minutes down a hill to the TriMet bus stop, take the bus into downtown Portland, transfer to another bus, and then that would take you home. And so I would get home about 8.30 at night. And I was thinking, nope, I am not doing this. Culturally, challenges that you had to deal with? Culturally, I think, um, not really. I think for me, I've always kind of been a, adaptable. I've always been able to get along with everyone. And it's interesting because when I was in the inner cities, it was predominantly African-American. And I remember the first day I walked into sixth grade class at River Girl, Mr. Barker was the teacher. And, you know, I was the only African-American kid that walked in there. But see, I didn't focus on that because they were taking a spelling test that day. And Mr. Barker said, you could take the test. And I thought, OK, I'm going to take the test because I'm going to show them how smart I am. Anyway, it was 15 words and I got like eight right. And most of the kids got 15 and 14 right. But see, that sparked the competition. And I was like, OK, I'm going to catch these these um, these these kids just academically. And so. So for me, again, it just inspired me. It motivated me to really challenge myself and, and do better than I was doing in my previous situation. Bill Musgrave calling the signals for the Ducks. He's got some room. He may score. Look out inside the five and brought down at the two. Beautiful play. And this is flat out speed right here. 79 yards on the play. J.J. Burton, the senior from Portland out of Lake Ridge High School and Tom Smythe's fine program. But so uh, when you're a young kid, sports don't play that big of a role in your life. When did you realize kind of you were a decent athlete and, and you know, were there outlets before organized sports, you know, in high school or whatever like that? Yeah, good question. I was the playground kid. I played in a neighborhood. We played in Portland. We would have races every night. We played basketball. We played football. But it was my ninth grade summer that I realized that maybe athletically I had something special. I remember we were playing outside in the neighborhood um, football and you got the younger kids that would play and then the older kids would play. They were like seniors and juniors and I would always watch them play and think, man, I want to play with these guys, but they would never let us play with them. Well, I'm watching the game one time and one of the guys get hurt. He gets hurt. And so the guys are like, well, there's nobody else to play. We just got these young kids. And one guy goes, grab him, JJ. I've seen him play. He's pretty good. So they're like, JJ, you want to play with us? So I was all excited. Like, yeah, I'm gonna get to play with the older kids. So we're playing flag fo or playing football and they won't throw me the ball. They're not throwing me the ball. They're just saying, go long, go long, go long. So I'm getting frustrated and we're losing and I get in the huddle. I said, just throw me the ball once. And the quarterback says, I don't know. But the guy, Ron, who selected me said, throw him the ball. Let's give him a shot. Quarterback says, what do you want to do? I want to go long. He goes, what? I said, just throw it as far as you can. So I line up. I run for the route. He launches it and I just go get it. And I catch it with my fingertips and I could hear all the guys go, whoa. And after that, they just kept throwing me the ball over and over. But that was the moment where I realized, okay, maybe I have the gift of athletic abilities that might take, take me to another level. And, you know, little do you know what your future is going to hold at that point, but you're playing receiver in this anecdote. Is that the position you just naturally gravitated toward? It was this, hey, you're the fastest kid, outrun everyone. Yeah, I naturally gravitated to being a receiver. For whatever reason, I could always catch things, catch balls, catch footballs, catch whatever. The eye-hand coordination was always on point. And then I was always fascinated with speed. So you put the two together, 
the wide receiver was the right position. How about track and field? Um, how do you develop as a track and field athlete? Because it's ultimately track and field that uh, kind of is your, your doorway into collegiate athletics. Yeah, so going into my sophomore year, I realized that I wanted to get involved in athletics. And that was when I decided it was worth taking the TriMet bus home and getting home really late because I had goals and had things I wanted to achieve. And I realized that athletics might be the route to take me where I want to go. And so that first year in, um, at Lake Ridge, I went out for football and then also went out for track. Um, track was just something natural for me because, like I said, I was always known as a fast kid, but I was a hard worker too. I loved the jump. So I didn't want to be a sprinter. That's where a long jump and the high hurdles came into play. And, and I competed in those two events throughout my high school career. And do you figure out fairly early that you can compete with the best kids, maybe not even just locally, but regionally or even nationally? Yeah, I sure did. Because that summer, I joined a summer track program called the Albina Roadrunners. It was uh, coached by Phil and Carol Walden right in the inner cities. And that was really my first introduction to track and field. And they would take us to all the track meets, the local track meets. Then we would go to the Junior Olympics. And then we would go to the Nationals. And that's when I got to compete on a national or regional level. And you started comparing yourself against other athletes. And you realize that, okay, you're, you're pretty good. So it did a lot for boosting my confidence and helping me realize that, okay, I need to go run in high school now. Obviously, to, to play football, you have to have a fearlessness you know, I think particularly with the hurdles, you have to have a fearlessness and, and even long jump, just sort of propel yourself through the air like that. Do you have a sense for kind of why you gravitated towards events like that? I like the challenge of them. To me, and I'm not trying to put sprinters down, but I just thought sprinting, running straight ahead was just too easy. It, it didn't have the challenge involved in it. And what I loved about the hurdles, it was like, you got 10 barriers, 10 obstacles. It's you against them and you have other competitors and you know your ability to focus on your race and stay in your lane and take each hurdle at a time will determine your success. And I love that challenge. And then the long jump, just man, running down a, running down a runway and hitting a board and jumping as high and hold it as long as you can. There was so much thrill in that. So, and I think mentally, because those to me were more challenging events, that when I played football, it was an easy transition to deal with the contact, to deal with the physical part, because that to me wasn't really hard. Where is your passion lying? You know, is it, is it football or track and field? Is it both? And how is that impacting kind of where you see sport, either one of those sports or sport in general taking you you know, as you start thinking about college and even a post-collegiate life? It was always track first. Track was always number one. Football was just something else I did to complement track, you know, or something to do in the fall. And, and plus, everybody kept saying I was too small to play football, so there's that chip on your shoulder. I'll show you, you know, so it was that kind of mentality. And high school... I had a really good senior year. I was all-state wide receiver. I had like 14 or 15 touchdowns, something like that. But I was a 5'9", 133 pounds. Even though I didn't really want to play college football, I just took offense to the fact that no one saw me as a D1 football player. It just did not see me that way. And they just totally wrote me off. I didn't get letters. I didn't get a courtesy letter. From Oregon, Oregon State, you know, the standard little courtesy letter sure. you give the seniors. I got nothing, just small colleges. And so. But are you just kind of hearing through the grapevine that that's the, just the size is just too much of a hurdle for them to overcome? Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had 14, 15 touchdowns on 44 catches. I mean, I was in the end zone all the time. But again, they're looking at my size and just right away labeling me as too small some coaches would say, you should go to junior college. You should go to play at Division three or Division two. But I was like, no, I'm a D1 athlete. And that's when the plan started to formulate my mind was that, okay, I'm still all about track, but I'm going to see which D1 school will allow me to walk on in football. As a kid whose primary passion is track and field, though, growing up in the state of Oregon, given the tradition of Oregon track and field. More than a century of history has come from the place we know today as Hayward Field. It is the birthplace of Nike and has been home to thousands of runners, 
including Steve Prefontaine. What kind of place does that program hold in your interest, say, when you're in high school or growing up? What's your awareness of the history, the tradition? What kind of opportunity could be presented if you could potentially compete with them? Yeah, that was always in the back of my mind. I thought the perfect scenario was Oregon. Initially, I didn't think that was going to happen. Um, but for me, being homegrown, I, I wanted to stay in state. You know, Oregon State, they recruited me pretty hard in track, not football. So I even considered running for them. But if I could stay in state and run for Oregon, I thought that would be the bonus. And so I was very pleased to know that when John Gillespie and, and Bill Dillinger were recruiting me in track, when I asked them a simple question of what do you think about me trying football one year at Oregon? And they didn't think it was a crazy idea. Their words were, if you come run for the Ducks and the first season, and if you can convince head coach Rich Brooks to let you walk on, you have our blessing. And again, I thought that's the opportunity I'm looking for. They're opening the door here potentially to play for Rich Brooks and the Oregon football program, but they haven't expressed much interest in you. How does it come to pass that you have some level of assurance, if at all, that, okay, if I get on campus, they'll at least give me a shot to show what I can do in football. Well, as long as I had the coaches, the track coaches blessing, I knew I had to create the opportunity. I had to now make it happen. And Rob, I went through this process. So that spring when I was running track, during spring football, I picked one week where I was gonna go out and watch spring practices. Now I'm supposed to be in the weight room with the track, play, with the track team, but I'm sneaking out and, for that week, I sat up in the stands and I watched a couple of practices. And I was just evaluating the talent, the size of the guys, the athletic ability, because first I needed to believe in myself that, okay, we can do this. And after a couple of days, I reached the conclusion that I can play D1. But when you first settled into that bleacher seat to watch, there might've been a question in your mind like, hey, I'm still not sure if, you know, I've heard all these doubts about me and maybe, I don't know if you're starting to believe any of that, but there is even a question in your mind. Could I, could I hack it with the, these guys? But then you watch them for a couple of days and get some reassurance. Yeah, I needed that reassurance. I remember having the, the program guide and I had the roster and I was looking at the wide receivers. Okay, who's this? And I'd watch him and I'd watch him. I was like, oh, who's this? And I was just, I was evaluating the talent out there. And, and two days or three days of doing that, actually it was two days of doing that, I reached the conclusion, I can do this. Now I've got to get noticed. What am I going to do? The fact is that that team is coming off the 83 football season that featured the 0-0 tie against Oregon State. And that will do it. That's the end of the game at Austin Stadium. With the final score, Oregon nothing. Oregon State Nothing. Oregon football certainly wasn't then what it is now. Did that matter to you? Did that, was that even helpful to you perhaps? Uh, just kind of this, where that program was at and kind of what its needs might've been? That didn't matter to me. What got me excited was the fact that Chris Miller had signed with the Ducks. He was a freshman in that 83 season. Freshman that, eight, that 83 season. And I had heard that Anthony Newman wanted to be a duck too. And so I was starting to think like, okay, these top in-state athletes are staying home. They're gonna do what they can to make Oregon a better program. And so I was like, I want to be a part of that. Did, did you know those guys at all? I mean, now it's kids go and play in camps. And so it's like all the top guys know each other. I don't know if back then it was the same. Did you have much like personal familiarity with those guys specifically? Not Chris. I played against Chris in the playoffs his senior year. I didn't know much about Chris. I learned more about him going into that week and after that game, and we beat him. But I was like, man, I didn't realize how high caliber athlete he was. Anthony, I was more familiar with, and and during that time too, I was competing against Latin Barry, and so I and I knew Latin wanted to go to Oregon. So um, that's another guy who played football and track and field. Right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And and to me, I just thought. Why are all these top athletes in Oregon leaving the state? Why not stay home and make the Oregon program better?
do you come to have conversations with those guys as the years progress and even now years later kind of that because you know every incremental step helps advance the program do you guys even years later have conversations taking pride in that that helping kind of move the ball down the field a little bit to get Oregon football where where it is now absolutely absolutely we've had multiple conversations on that we talk about how we're proud of the fact that we stayed home, that we were part of the foundation of the Oregon program you see today. Because I know there's different theories about, oh, it started here, it started there. And I believe when I, when I started my freshman year, like you said, the year before wasn't a great year. I think we were five and six, five and six, six and five, six and five my senior year. And my senior year, when I started seeing, you know, Derek Lavelle and Bill Musgrave and Chris Oldham and and Terry Obi and Tony Hargain and all these top tier high school players coming to Oregon, you could feel it was about to happen. You know, so I, I like to think that we played some kind of role in the foundation of what we see today. Now, your first year on campus that spring, track and field wins a national championship. What's it like to have that be part of your introduction to college athletics? I was like, wow. You know, when you're you're a freshman, you're a national championship team. You don't realize how special that was until years later. I mean, I'm on this team and I've got Olympians like Joaquin Cruz. And what a debut, one of the great talents in the world right now, only 20 years old and he is hurting physically, but he made it look easy. Joaquin Cruz, 20 years old from Taquatinga, Brazil, and Oregon. It's the first time we've had a chance to see him in a big-time American meet against top international competition, and he made it look easy. Corey Tarpenton and Ken Flax and, you know, Brian Krauser and all these great athletes. I had no idea I was amongst greatness. And what was really cool, though, I learned a lot from them. I watched them train. I watched them practice. And because of the way they attacked their practices and the intensity, that caused me to train at a higher level too. And I know it made an impact, but I just never thought, Rob, you know, after my entire athletic career, that the only team championship I've ever won in anything is the National Track and Field Championship that year. Not a bad, I mean, you're, you're wearing the ring now as we're speaking. It's not a bad uh, accolade to have under your belt. I'm sure there's a lot of people whose careers, they would take that, that one. Oh, yeah, and it, it was nice, too. We got inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame at Oregon, so that was a nice bonus as well. Uh, what are the mechanics of then actually approaching Rich Brooks and saying, I think I can, I think I can help you guys. I think I can play some kind of role. Give me a shot as you're going into your, your second fall on campus in 1984. Well, the plan was to watch practice the next day, but stand on the field. You're not supposed to be on the field. I figured a coach or someone is going to tell me to leave, and I'm going to at least be able to say why I'm here. And I stood on the field during practice. I was near the goalpost in the end zone, and, and I stood there for about an hour, an hour and a half, and I'm watching practice, just kind of moving around, trying to get noticed. And right towards the end of practice, I see Rich Brooks walking toward me. He's at a beeline heading towards me. And Rob, I'm starting to get nervous. I'm like, uh-oh, oh no, here, what are we going to do? Here it goes. So he comes up to me, says, hey, Burden, I saw you out here in the stands. You're the track kid. What are you doing out here? I said, coach, I want to play. And he's like, well, I, I don't know. You know, we, we, we looked at you. We evaluated you. We thought you were just too small. And I said, coach, I can play. Just give me a shot. And he's like, okay, well, come to my office the next day. Let's talk about it. So the next day, I go to Rich Brooks' office, and we have this 30-minute conversation, and 25 minutes of it is just me convincing him. I think he wanted to see how bad I really wanted it because I'm just convincing him and tell him what I can do. And then finally he says, okay, I've already talked to the track coaches. They said it's my call. And then he says, this is what we're going to do. You make the team, we'll switch your scholarship to track or to football. If you don't make it, just goes back to track and everything is fine. And I said, okay, no problem. And that was the opportunity I was waiting for. So much in life is about taking advantage of opportunities, but so much as well as kind of having somebody else willing to kind of help open a door to you. Just, it seems like in your story, those two elements, you know, having some, someone like a Rich Brooks say, okay, I'll crack the door open for you. 
and then your ability to kind of barge through it at that point. How crucial is it to have those things working in tandem? You know, people who will help help provide you opportunities, but then your desire to take advantage of them get you where you're at today. Yeah, that, that's an important point because the first part of that, and one of the things I try to teach the people is that sometimes in life you have to create opportunities where it appears not to exist. You can't just wait for it to fall in your lap. You've got to figure out how to create it and make it happen. And that's what I did. I sat in the stands, I was on the field, I talked to Rich, and when he said yes, all I saw the doors open. Now the rest was up to me. Because when I walked in fall camp and I saw that depth chart the very first day, there were like 13 wide receivers on her and I was number 13. And here's what's interesting, and this kind of helps you understand my mentality, because some people might look at that and go, this is a waste of my time. Why am I doing this? They're not going to give me a shot. I'm not going to get a chance. All I said was like, how fast can I move up the depth chart? That was my mindset. And it wasn't about being cocky. It was more like athletically, I knew I had the abilities. I also knew how much work I was willing to put into this as well. It was just showing them what I could do. And it literally took about two weeks to where I start moving up. I moved up and then I was backing up, I think, um, Scott Holman and Lou Barnes. But I remember Bob Toledo, the offensive coordinator, said, man, you really surprised all of us. We didn't think you could play at this level. I said, yeah, you're too busy judging me from the outside. I just needed an opportunity, and, and they gave me that. What does it look like? What are you doing to move up the depth chart? I mean, are, are you getting many balls thrown your way? I mean, are you having to do, you know, scout team, practice squad, that type of a thing? What, you know, your first couple years, you know, not a lot of production in game. So what do those first couple years look like in terms of earning yourself the bigger role that you ended up having your last couple years? Yeah, one is I'm, I'm trying to be a student of the game. Uh, in Lake, at Lake Ridge, when I was a wide receiver, I didn't know much about defense. I really didn't pay much attention. So I'm trying to be more of a student of the game, um, understanding the schemes better, paying attention in meetings, in the film, which is something I did not used to do, learning from the veterans. I was always picking Lou Barnes' brain and Scott Holman's brain, and they always paid it forward. They were always helping me as well. And then everything that I did, whether it was a drill, it was scout team. I did it full speed. It was like, that was my game day. I wanted them to see that I was willing to do what it would take to make the team better. You need me to go over the middle and catch a ball? I'll do it. You need me to go hit that linebacker? I'll do it. So I was trying to help them to stop looking at my size and just see me as an asset to the team. And it was, it was a process, but I believe they started seeing that, okay, wait a minute, maybe this guy can help us. I mean, did anybody on defense or whatever, try to like pick on you at all? And did they see a smaller guy say, I'm going to hit this guy and introduce him to college? Do you think coaches were waiting to see you take a couple big hits and pop back up and prove that this concern they had, there, you know, there was actually no merit to it? It's like you were there. It's like <laughs> the defensive guys, when I came out, there's, oh, here comes the track guy. I'm going to hit the track guy. Who's going to hit the track guy first? That's, they were teasing me so much. Because they didn't, they didn't expect me to really be able to play at that. And they were going to test me. And I, hey, I'm okay with that. I've done this before. So when I showed them that, I was willing to take the hits. I was willing to do the stock blocking. I was willing to cut guys. And it went from like track guy to like, okay, this guy's, this guy's pretty tough. He can play. So they stopped doing that after a few weeks. Graduate Eugene is the perfect place for Duck fans. Stop by the hotel's signature restaurant, Trophy Room, for delicious food and drinks with a nostalgic twist. If you're looking for a little caffeine boost, check out our Lobby Cafe, Poindexter Coffee. Graduate Eugene, the smartest place to stay for Duck fans. The sense of where football can take you in your life, potentially post-collegiately, how does that develop? Because you go out to the team and you're 13th on the depth chart, you end up having this extended NFL career. Um, did you believe from the moment you were number 13 on the depth chart that potentially you could play professionally and have the kind of pro career you did? I had no belief whatsoever I could play in the NFL. I never even thought about playing in the NFL. Football at Oregon for me was just the simple fact that everyone said I couldn't do it. 
and I love the challenge of proving them wrong. I also recognize the benefits of being in football as far as training and, and you know, working out and how it could make you stronger for track too, because at that point, everything is really all about track. Um, but it's interesting how things work out because the first year I had three catches, second year I had three catches, and then the third year I had 21 catches and I broke my arm against Nebraska. So by the time my senior year comes around, this is supposed to be the big year. And Bob Toledo was the first person that said, you know, you're going to get a shot in the NFL someday. And I'm like, no, I'm not. He goes, yeah, you are. I go, no, I'm not. He goes, you are. Trust me. So he was the first coach that mentioned my name in the NFL, but I still didn't believe it. So going into that senior year, it was just more about how can I have my best senior year possible so I can go focus on track and field. That's really what it was. Yeah, like your, your, your first year in the NFL ends up being 1988, which is an Olympic year, and you end up having an injury that sidelines you that year. But as you're, you know, say it's 1985, 1986, and you're thinking ahead to 1988, are you thinking Olympics, not NFL? Totally, because I was also thinking 1988, the Olympic trials. Oh, wait, the national meet was at Hayward Field. Um, so that to me was big because I always jumped well at Hayward field. So I was thinking national meets at Hayward field. I get my big jump, takes me right into the trials. There's Carl Lewis and there was Mike Powell and there was a third spot. That's all I kept thinking. There's a third spot. I was like, that's the spot I want. That was kind of the game plan and what I was visualizing taking place. But Bob Toledo plants this seed. You could potentially be. NFL player, as you mentioned, you broke your arm your junior year. You end up having an ankle injury your senior yeah. year. Yep. So, again, you know, kind of that, that metaphor of hurdles being presented in front of you. You've trained yourself over the years to, to get over hurdles, but here's one a dream that suddenly seems potentially realizable gets another hurdle thrown in front of it. How much of a setback did that seem like at the time? Well, it contributed to me not believing I could play in the NFL because I thought if I can't stay healthy in college, how could I stay healthy in the NFL? So again, that was just a far-fetched concept to me. And as I looked at NFL roster and the size of players and all that, I just, I, I didn't think it was possible. And if I understand correctly, you get an invite to the NFL combine that you did not anticipate getting. Yeah, when I got the letter, I was like, what is the combine? <laughs> And that Literally, was what response. is the combine? What is the combine? I go to Rich Brooks. What is this? He goes, well, they invite the top 300 college prospects. So that means they've invited the top 40, 45 wide receivers in the country. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I had one touchdown my senior year, 19 catches, and they're inviting me. I just, I could not believe it. But again, I'm thinking, well, let's go check it out. It's an opportunity for me to measure myself against some of the top athletes in the U.S. It's one more instance where, hey, a door's been maybe cracked open for you a little bit. Let's go see what I can do with it. Yeah, exactly. And that was really the thought was like, okay, Bob thinks I could play in the NFL. I don't think I can, but let me go here and measure myself against these all these other top athletes. And Rob, I'll tell you, it was such an eye-opening experience because when I got there, I remember we were sitting at this table and I'm there and there's Tim Brown sitting there and Sterling Sharp is sitting there and Aaron Cox is sitting there and Flipper Anderson and Brian Blades. All these guys went in the first or second round, had great NFL careers. And I'm sitting there thinking like, what am I doing here? You know, but uh, I tested well. I didn't test great. I tested well enough. I caught the ball well, um, you know, but I weighed in at one. I was, my official weight was 5'10", 157 pounds. It was my official weight, and I remember standing on the podium when you get weighed and the scouts are all there and you're standing up with your shorts on, and, and then one of the scouts goes, was that, was that 157? Yeah, I think it's 157. They were like, 157? Did I hear go. that right? Yeah, yeah. Did I hear that right? <laughs> but you run 445? At the Combine, I ran 44. Yeah, they had multiple times, like 441 to 445. I didn't, and that's what I said. I didn't run that well there. Um, that sounds that, fast to me. Yeah, back, <laughs> well, back then we used to wear the, the long distance Pegasus shoes. We couldn't wear what we run, we wear, they wear today. But whenever then the scouts would come out and timing, then I was like four, three, six, four, three, eight. So I was running 
more there. And I always thought, man, if I could have ran that at the combine, that would have been nice. But, um, but yeah. Do you meet Marty Schottenheimer for the first time at the combine? He, co he comes to play a pretty big role in, in your pro career. No, I did not meet him at all. When scouts were visiting Oregon, they always came to work out Anthony Newman or Roland Putsier. And I was kind of like the courtesy. Yeah, well, here, let's work out. So there was like three teams that worked me out. Tampa Bay, Cleveland, and um, the Redskins. And that was it. And it was, I think, like I said, I just think they just wanted to see, a, have a closer look at me. I remember one coach, he comes there, Tampa Bay coach, he comes there, he says, line up there. He throws me the ball really hard 10 times. I catch everyone. He says, okay, he can catch. Because I had dropped one ball at the combine, you know. So they just want to just kind of see me up close. But, but again, I'm just experiencing all this. And I'm just like, this is not going to happen. You get drafted in the eighth round. One more, you know, once again, here's an opportunity that's, that's, that, that you've helped create for yourself, but you've been presented with as well. How likely or not did kind of catching on feel? Uh, does that feel, is your mentality, this is the opportunity I needed? Let's go. Um, you know, how tangible or not did things seem at that point? Well, the shock of being drafted, it was hard enough to deal with that. The second day of the draft and hearing Marty Schottenheimer on the phone, eighth round, Cleveland Browns, 216th pick. I was just blown away that they actually drafted me. It's like, you guys really see me as a potential NFL player? So that excitement was there. And then the conversation kind of shifted because Marty said, you know, a lot of the athletes like to drop out of school and come out early and start training so they can have an edge going into camp. And I'm sitting there thinking like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to be graduating. I got Pac-10s. I got Nationals. I want to make, go to, I'm going to Olympic trials. So I got off that phone, Rob, very confused because I'm thinking there's no way I'm passing up the opportunity to finish my senior track season. So um, it was a happy moment, and then it became very confusing for me. You end up having a knee injury that kind of makes it all, all of that irrelevant, unfortunately. When does that happen? So the following week, there's the rookie camp. Um, the Cleveland Browns have their rookie camp, their mini camp. They have all the rookies come out. And again, like you said, hey, let me just go check it out. Let me evaluate it, take advantage. They draft you, go check it out. And I remember leaving um, Eugene and Bill Dillinger, the head track coach, he goes, don't do the drills. He goes, JJ, you're going to win Pac-10s. You could win nationals. You got a shot at Olympics trials. Don't do the drills. And I go, Bill, I never get hurt doing these things. That was the wrong thing to say. Because <laughs> we go out there, the third practice, I tear up my ACL ligament. It was so devastating because uh, it was my first major setback, a major adversity. You know, the, the broken arm and the twisted ankle, that was nothing. This is something that was going to keep me out for a year or more and totally change the direction of my life. And, and when it happened, I knew what it was because it was so painful. And I just remember sitting in the treatment center. It's like the only time I've ever cried. Anything related to sports, I was sitting there crying. Not because of football, because I could not finish my Oregon track season. That was what I had been building up towards from Lakers Day. It was that senior year. It just, the fact that I couldn't do that, that just was so crushing to me. Presumably there's a trip back to Eugene and a first conversation with Bill Dellinger. Does he say, I told you so? Does Actually, Bill didn't talk to me when I came back. I never talked to Bill again. He didn't, I think he was, he was so upset that he could not communicate with me. And John Gillespie, he did. And, and it, they all just, they were, they were mad. They were upset. They felt bad. It was, just, it was so many mixed emotions. And I'm hobbling around there with, with the break, with the, um, you know, crutches and stuff. It was, it was really just probably more of the, probably one of the more disappointing moments in my entire athletic career was not being able to finish that season. What's the process of kind of regathering yourself mentally, physically? I mean, getting yourself kind of back on track from that. Is it, is it days? Is it weeks? Is it months? 
Well, it started that moment when I tore it up and I was in the treatment center because one of my assets is my speed, my jumping ability, my quickness, explosiveness. That's a gift I have. And I put a lot of work into enhancing it. And I thought, man, I won't be able to run like that anymore. But Dr. John Bergfeld, who performed my surgery, he comes over to me and I said, Doc, can I get my speed back? And he says, JJ, listen to this. If you work hard enough, not only could you get your speed back, you could come back faster. And you want to talk about saying the right thing at the right time to the right person? Because my goal from that moment was get faster, bigger, stronger, better. And that was the journey of starting the process. And still, don't think I can play in the NFL. Don't want to play in the NFL, but they, they got, they're, I'm hurt because of them. They got to pay me for a year. I'm going to sit on IR and milk this thing and see what happens. Is, is like the 92 Olympics still like a possibility as the years start to progress? Or, or had 88 really felt like kind of the goal window? Yeah, 88 was the goal window for me. That was the perfect storm because depending on how things went, I could have went on to have a track career. Um, but because of the football being introduced, it gave me some options. The injury obviously made the decision for me. The struggle was just still being with the Browns and not believing I could play in the NFL. And that first year was so pivotal for me because I was there at every meeting, every practice, and I did what I did when I was watching the Oregon practice. I was just evaluating talent. I was evaluating talent. I was measuring this guy, measuring that guy. And Rob, it was about halfway through the Brown season. I'm sitting in a meeting, and I'm watching the practice film. I'm watching this receiver do this and do that. And I said to myself, you know, I could play in the NFL if I really want to. And I said, the goal is we're going to play in the NFL. And that's when the mind shift shifted. Everything was geared towards now, believing I could play in the NFL, but I got to get healthy and show them that I can. I wonder what you tell people now about the way you balanced, because you've said a couple times, I didn't believe, I didn't necessarily believe. And yet also this drive to prove people wrong. It sounds like you almost had to prove yourself wrong to some extent. Obviously, there's a lot of nuance there, but how would you explain to people the way to equip yourself, to even if you have some self-doubt, to to keep believing in yourself and, and try to encourage yourself to do something even you aren't sure you can do. Yeah, well, there's, I'd say there's a couple components to it. One is you've got to have great people around you. You've got to have great mentors, coaches, accountability partners. And throughout my journey, high school, college, pro, I always had great mentors who would pour belief into me. Even when I was in high school, my uncle was saying, you're going to be this great NFL player. And I thought, you're nuts. But he would pour belief into me. In college, it was my coaches. It was, um, you know, different people around me. And I think that's important because sometimes our belief needs that boost. And you might have to borrow their belief in you until you get it to where it needs to be. And then I looked at my track record, too. I think about the moments that I did have successful moments that, hey, I have the qualities and the abilities to do these things. Now I just have to prove to myself that I can. And, and for me, too... I always talk about the importance of having a strong why, a motivation for doing something. And when I think about being raised in Northeast Portland and in inner cities, and you know, I was raised by a single parent mom, wonderful woman, worked really hard. She dropped out of school her junior year, you know, but she worked really hard. And I just remember when I was young, thinking to myself, I want something more. I, I want something more. I want to create opportunities for myself and my, my future family. So that, there was all that strong why that was driving me. And as I started seeing college could be an avenue, the NFL could be an avenue, it just caused me to work even harder to make that a reality. So the, the, the knee injury obviously uh, throws your 88 rookie, potential rookie season in the NFL off track. You spend 89 with the Cowboys on their practice squad. 1990, Marty Schottenheimer now is in Kansas City. You know, does he does he remember you? Had you made enough of an impression with him at Cleveland that he says, hey, that's a guy I want in my organization somehow? Yes, I did. Because when Cleveland called me, the Chiefs called me right away. And Marty's like, kid, I want you on the team. So I fly out to Kansas City. I work out for the Chiefs. I have a really good workout. And 
but they're like, hey, we want to just put you on the practice squad first. And while we're having this conversation, Detroit is calling my agent. We want to activate him. We want to play him this week. And so Marty's like, hey, I know you want to play. You want to be active players, so you go to Detroit. And then he's like, but if they try to put you on their practice squad, you come back and be on my practice squad. And I said, you got a deal. So I fly to Detroit, and when you get there first, you got to take a physical. Well, I've got some swelling in my knee due to the workout I had with the Chiefs, so they flunked me on the physical. So while they flunked me on the physical, now the Green Bay Packers are calling my agent. They're like, we'll take them. So I fly to Green Bay, and they find out that I flunked the physical from you know the Detroit Lions. So they flunked me on the physical. So I'm thinking, no big deal. She still want to sign me. So I fly back to Kansas City, and by this time, they've heard I flunked two NFL physicals. So they flunk me on the physical. So they don't sign me. You know, so, so think about that week. I was rejected by essentially four NFL teams over a you know, five-day period, pretty much, cut by Cleveland, Kansas City, and so on. So, so I go back home, and I realize what's holding me up is I need to make sure this knee's 100%. And I put in weeks of training. A couple months later, a couple teams are calling. And I realized too, Rob, this is my third year. I'm credited for two seasons. I haven't even played yet. And it's that third year where if you don't make it by your third year, you get labeled and you're not going to get a shot. So I felt that Kansas City was still the best option because Marty was there and they didn't have a guy that could run under 4'6", wide receiver. So I just knew that was the perfect fit. With Marty being there, that Kansas City was the perfect fit. And like I said, they had some really good receivers, but no one could run under a 4'6", 4'5". And I thought, hey, speed is what they need. Speed is what I got. So do you have to, because you end up making your debut in October, you have to play on the practice squad for a few weeks before that? So, so yeah, so I go through off-season training camp, have a great camp. I'm looking at the numbers. I'm on this team. But you see there's a couple veterans. There's a guy they drafted. So I kind of felt like maybe I might get caught into the whole it's a business decision. So I get cut, but Marty says, don't go anywhere. I'm bringing you back in two weeks. The drafted player has to be on the roster. So we hang tight. Two weeks, I'm working out in Kansas City. Just got married. Wife's pregnant. Don't have very much money at all. And I remember two weeks into that, I called Marty and said, Marty, I don't have any much money. I have teams calling. I said, I'd give you two weeks. I need a job now. And he says, kid, come to my office. So I drive to Arrowhead. I go to his office. He whips out his wallet. He gives me $200. He says, can this get you through the weekend? I said, yes. And he's like, take your wife out for dinner. So I take my wife out for dinner. Uh, they cut a veteran wide receiver that after the game Sunday, I get signed Monday. And then it just kind of the rest is history after that. Your uh, first touchdown is in Seattle. And a quick pass across the middle is caught by Burton at the 25 by the 2015 10-5. He's gone. Touchdown. J.J. Burden's first career touchdown gave Kansas City a 7 to nothing lead. You in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, particularly meaningful? Oh, very meaningful. It was meaningful, too, because my entire family drove up from Portland, Oregon to be there. Everyone was there. And, and even like I mentioned earlier, my uncle, my uncle Sonny, like I said, he was the one when I was a junior in high school saying I was going to play in the NFL, and I thought he was crazy. But there's something I forgot to tell you that – at that moment, when I was 16, he said, promise me your first NFL football or touchdown. And I said, no, I'm not going to NFL. He says, no, just promise me. I says, okay, you can have it. So fast forward to October 21st, 1990. We're playing in the Kingdom. I score a touchdown. I come out of the locker room with the ball. There's my family and there's my Uncle Sonny, arms folded, feeling proud. And I remember walking up to him and I took a knee and I just gave him the ball like this. And then I asked him, I said, uncle, how did you know I'd be in the NFL? And he said, what I said earlier, he says, nephew, I, know, I knew you could play. I knew you had the ability, but you didn't believe in yourself. So I needed to pour belief into you until you got your belief where it needed to be to take you all the way. And so that was, um, that was a special moment for many reasons, um, but the ball traveled a little bit. He had it for a while. 
My grandmother had it. She passed away, gave it back to him. Now it sits in my office. You end up developing into a starter for multiple seasons with the Chiefs. You play with Joe Montana. Joe Montana's second touchdown closed out the route. Play fake by Montana. Now guns it down the near sideline. He's looking for Burton. He makes the catch. It's a five touchdown, Kansas City. J.J. Burton. You come within a game of a Super Bowl. You catch touchdowns in playoff games. Underneath to Burton. Touchdown. There's some Kansas City fans here. Cheer the Burton score to tie it. As those years are progressing, is there a sense of wonder? Like, what is this What is this life I've created? You know, all I kind of wanted was a chance, but I wasn't even sure what it was going to develop into. Uh, you know, as your career is unfolding with all those highlights I mentioned, just what's the sense of wonderment that, like, I, th- this is happening? I've, I've made this a reality. Yeah, I went through periods of, like, I can't believe this has actually happened. I can't believe I'm actually in the NFL. It was it was the furthest thing from my mind. And when you think about the stats, the odds of, you know, college players and high school players making it to the NFL and, and being able to make it, and then the average NFL career has dropped to less than two years. And I'm going into year four. I thought, okay, I'm four years in. I qualify for retirement. Let's just take it one year at a time. And that's kind of how I took it, Rod. One year at a time, I I really focused on like, how can I be better than I was the season before? And every year was like that. And I just considered it a privilege and a blessing because I never expected to be there. No one ever expected me to be there. And every day I was there, I appreciated it and never took it for granted. But at the same time, it instilled a lot of um, winning principles and success strategies because you're playing against the best of the best. Everybody's a great athlete. Everybody's hungry. So it was always those little things that you worked on from day to day that made a difference in your performance. Did you ever like drop into like an all comers meet or anything like that? Was the track and field itch ever scratched as the years progressed? Oh, it, it definitely was. So when I was in Kansas City in 1992, because in the off season, I would still train like a track athlete because I knew the value of sprint training. And so I went to the local high school, Lee Summit High School, and I volunteered to be their hurdle coach. Head coach was like, yeah. So I coached track for three years during the off season. I was there to help them, they were helping me. I was running sprint workouts with them, which played a really big role in, in, in my, you know, my speed and continuing to perform in the, in, at the NFL level. And then when my career was over, I had to jump in a couple of meets. I did run a couple of hurdle meets, open meets. I long jump in a couple of meets just one year or two after I finished. Because I just, I just wanted that closure. And ironically, that was the time I ran into Bill Dillinger. It was the first time I had talked to Bill since I tore my ACL up. So we had nice closure. You know, it was good to talk to him and all that. He, he just said, man, I just felt so bad for you because he goes, you... Not only could you have won NCAs, you probably would have made the Olympic team, you know, he said, you know, but I said, well, Bill, it's all still worked out in the end. Some guys, you know, who uh, grow up dreaming of playing in the NFL, it's in their entire identity. And you, you hear stories of, of uh, you know, once your playing days are done, you know, some dark times where you just don't know what else life could possibly hold. As a guy who wasn't sure the NFL was going to be a reality for you, did you have to deal with a tough transition like that, wrapping your head around what your post-playing days uh, life would look like? I don't think I did because one is I never expected to play in the NFL. So my perspective was so different because every day, like I said, was a privilege. I was just happy to be there. But when I was there, I thought, let me take advantage of this while I can because my career might end any day. So I was networking and I was connecting with people. I made business contacts and I was looking, that's why I was coaching. I was, do I want to go that route? I used to substitute teach during the off season too. Do I want to become a teacher? There's a couple different things I did, but I was always planning for life after the game. I didn't think I'd play nine years, but when I approached that year, I felt I had created some options so that I could transition which I was able to do, um, which unfortunately, you know, some guys don't. And I always tell young players today, I say day one is when you start planning for life after football. You start planning from day one. As a kid who grew up kind of so appreciative of opportunities your mom created and, but, and also like, I want to, I want to get more. 
did you ever get to have a conversation with mom like thank you for what you did and you know look look what I was able to do with it the conversation I usually have with her is how because my mom she follows me on social media she loves my motivational stuff and she's always reaching out to me and I say mom you were the first mentor I had you were the first person who taught me what it means to do the work uh, my mom at one point was a welder she welded for a company called FMC where there was all men and she was the only woman and I'd watch her come home with these big boots and this, this, you know, her jacket was so heavy and we'd pull it off of her, but she instilled in me that you do what it takes to accomplish the goal. The goal there was to take care of her family, you know, so that mindset, you know, stayed with me as well. And I always thank her for instilling that in me because I don't think she realized the impact that ha that example had on me moving forward. It seems like the idea of kind of paying it forward resonated with you too, and is something you want to pass along. Because yeah, you 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 you've become really involved in kind of the health industry and um, and doing motivational speaking to inspire others, and you know even your family. You know you have biological children, but then you have adopted children as well to try to you know provide provide for them. What how at the front of your thinking was that over the, over the years of hey I. I benefited from some opportunities that, you know, you also took advantage of it, but you know, I want to, I want to inspire others and help create opportunities for others too that way. Yeah. Because there were so many people along my life that I could give credit to who helped me along the way, every aspect of my life. And I always wanted to be the type that was willing to share, was willing to teach, was willing to mentor. I mean, I think about all the the NFL, let's go college. You know, it was Lou Barnes and Scott Holman. And then I get to the NFL where it's a very competitive business. And it was Webster Slaughter and Brian, Lent, Brian Brennan and Stefan Page and different receivers who took me under their wings and who would teach me the things I needed to know so that I could be successful. And so I wanted to make sure I did that as an athlete. But then when I retired, the only struggle I had, Rob, was do I want to go into coaching or do I want to do something else? Because I had a desire to coach and teach, which I did a little bit at Tigard High School. I did some at Lake Ridge High School, football and track. But I realized that, especially when I started looking at, hmm, there's not a lot of NFL players who can say they played nine years at 5'10", 157 pounds. I just felt that I was in a unique position that I could not only just teach athletes, but the masses. There's so many people that deal with uncertainty and adversity and setbacks and lack of confidence and negative thinking. And these are all the things I dealt with, but I learned to overcome them. So that's why I went into the businesses I have as a professional speaker, as a health and wellness coach in Isogenics, because it's all about how can I help people achieve the goals that are important to them. As you look back now with the benefit of, you know, hindsight and, and wisdom of, of, uh, of the years and all that, I mean, what are the things you're most proud of, of your career, you know, being a duck, playing for the ducks? I would say probably two things. One is I'm just appreciative that the track coaches and the football coaches were on the same page and they were willing to give me the opportunity because not a lot of coaches do that. Sometimes track coaches don't want their athletes playing football and vice versa. And after talking to so many different schools, I was so pleased to know that at the heart of the matter, the in-state school, Oregon, they were willing to give me a shot, an opportunity. And I did both sports at Oregon. I graduated too. Yeah, the other thing that I'm really proud of is this. I mean, Oregon has had some great wide receivers over the years. I mean, just this last year, amazing wide receivers. Yeah, you look at Troy Franklin, but before him, the Jeff Mayles and the Sammy Parkers, all the records Troy broke, yeah. Josh Huffs. The numbers are astounding, and obviously I'm not going to be in there. I'm one touchdown. You know, I'm not in those all-great, former all-great wide receivers. Already, and that's okay. But what I'm proud of is a simple fact. Next to Ahmad Rashad, I've had the longest NFL career as a wide receiver of these NFL or these Oregon wide receivers. And I'm proud of that because it doesn't matter where you start. What matters is where you finish and what you do with the opportunities. And, and it makes me feel proud that 
when I look at that, like, wow, I played nine years in the NFL. Thanks for joining us on the Mighty Oregon Podcast, a production of Sport and Story and Learfield IMG College. You can support the Mighty Oregon Podcast by going to wherever you find your podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. I'm your host, Rob Mosley. Producer for the Mighty Oregon Podcast is Tony LaBarbera. Production assistant for the show is Evan Eccleston. Supervising producers are Bart Pullman and Kelly Shukart. Executive producer at Sport & Story is Bo Mattingly. Theme music for the show is composed by Sweet 25. Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.